everyone, and welcome to Name Drop San Diego. I'm Christy Totten, and with the 2020 election inching closer, we've got a great guest for you on this episode. I'm Abby Hamblin, and on this podcast, we get to know interesting San Diegans. A lot of times, that means talking to people who are already well-known by name or job title and getting to know them a bit more personally. Michael Vu is the Registrar of Voters for San Diego County. His job is extremely important, especially during an election year, so we wanted to get to know him a bit better. On this episode, you'll hear what he expects from the 2020 election, but also what it's like to do his very difficult job. And where are you originally from? Well, uh, Utah uh, is where I was uh, raised. Uh, I was born in the four corners of the United States. The, the, so they really, the, the, I don't know if we want to launch into it, Abby, but uh, really uh, for me was life makes its way full circle for me here in San Diego because when my parents and my siblings came to the United States, the first uh, step on U.S. soil was uh, Camp Pendleton because of the Vietnam War. And so we were quickly ushered to the four corners of the United States. That's Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and um, Colorado, and New Mexico, sorry. And- Trivia question. Yes, yes, the four corners area. And uh, I was born effectively a year later in uh, Arizona. I say Arizona, but really, uh, we live so close to the Four Corners area that uh, we lived in Arizona, but the clear, uh, clear, uh, closest hospital was New Mexico. So we had to cross the border into New Mexico uh, to get me born. So, and then after that, we were we moved up to to Utah, as the story goes. Yeah, actually, I I might ask you that one again. I think that's oh. we could just use this. <laughs> uh, we could have just no, used can. this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, well then let me ask a follow-up if we're just gonna okay. get into this. Um, what is that story of your parents coming here? Well, it's uh, as a result of the Vietnam War. The, uh, the, uh, my parents knew that the, uh, the war was going to be lost. My, my dad was in the Vietnamese army for the South Vietnamese army. And they knew that the uh, war was going, to get, uh, was going to be lost. And so my, as my dad describes it, is, is that um, he went on a, a moped, one of those two-stroke motorcycles that they have in, in Vietnam, and went to uh, pick up my, my mom and, and, and my siblings, um, and went to my grandparents' house and said that uh, they were going to leave. Uh, that way they could raise the kids. Um, and uh, of course, grandparents consented. And so there was, what, uh, three of my siblings, uh, my mom and my dad on a two-stroke motor scooter heading to um, the airport. And uh, they were one of the last families that was able to get a plane and be on that plane uh, before the airport was being striked by, of course, the North Vietnamese army as they were flying off. And, and of course, that same day is when um, the war was lost. And uh, of course, there were a couple of puddle jumpers that we had to get to before coming to the United States. But ultimately, we landed here in Camp Pendleton and uh, where uh, a number of refugee families were uh, landing and then either ushered in multiple different places. And for us, our family, we were um, accepted uh, by uh, 
a couple of uh, a, a convent called the Blessed Sacrament Sisters because my family is Catholic, and uh, the Catholic uh, mission there, the convent was accepting refugee families that were there, and so we stayed there uh, for a little bit. Got uh, got settled, um, of course, as you can imagine, with that many people on a on a, a motorcycle. Uh, they really didn't bring anything with them except for what they had on wearing and uh, when they left. And so we, for the most part, had to start over. My parents had to start over. It was humbling beginnings, um, very humbling and, and um, beginnings uh, during that time frame. And then I was the first one born in the United States. My parents, uh, my siblings were born, of course, in, in Vietnam at, at that point in time. And, um, and then subsequent to that, my parents had uh, two other uh, kids. So it was a, a pretty big, large family. What an incredible story. I have to say for the record, this is like the most interesting and fastest moving interview I think we've done to date, just like jumping right into something that's yeah. so important. <laughs> um, but I wonder, um, did your parents ever see their parents again? Uh, they did, yes. Uh, approximately 20 years later, uh, they did. Oh. When there was, um, when a normalization was happening between the United States and, and Vietnam, uh, my parents set out 20 years later to be able to go uh, visit uh, my grandparents. I uh, unfortunately never got to meet my grandparents. Uh, I've always heard about them and, and certainly there were those long distances calls. There was no such things as cell phones back then. And so there's these long distance phone calls and uh, they were quite expensive to take, make a call out to, I mean, they still are, but quite expensive to, to stay in touch. But as you can imagine with everything that was happening in Vietnam, there was this uh, push um, of, of, you know, the, the needs that my, uh, my parents' siblings as well as uh, grandparents uh, needed during that whole time frame that it was occurring. You know, I think on, uh, on the one hand, it's, it's humbling, but you've got other families out there that, you know, they're, they're so certain family members were left behind, like either a husband or a wife that ended up going into re-education camps that were out there. So uh, I feel like our family was frankly pretty darn lucky. I mean, we've got some folks here at our office because we support, you know, Vietnamese is a one of our federally covered languages that we have to support here in, in San Diego County. And uh, one of the individuals uh, that worked for our office in a season capacity, he's been here almost as long as I have been. And he was one of those individuals that uh, was sent to a re-education camp for a number of years. And the story he tells is, is so much uh, different than any wow. of the stories that I could even offer. But um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, but, you know, making, it's, it's one thing to come to the United States and be so fortunate to live in the United States. And, and, but uh, as I, I mentioned, is life makes its way full circle because we were quickly ushered to the Four Corners area. I was born, I was raised in, in Utah. Uh, and went through school uh, there, went to the University of Utah, and uh, fell into, into elections, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, and ultimately went to Ohio and, and then found myself coming to San Diego, so uh, raising my family. So, um, uh, so uh, uh, there's no way I'm leaving either. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what an incredible story. So... What is your road to becoming the registrar of voters? Were you that kid who was so excited for his 18th <laughs> birthday and voting for the first time? Or what? how does somebody become a registrar of voters? <laughs> for many of us, I would say it kind of just falls into your lap. You weren't really seeking it out. Uh, for myself, my story related to that is um, now in, in grade school, I had always um, ran for various, you know, 
student body officers, that type of stuff. I had never thought about working in elections. Um, I was planning on going to law school. And so after I graduated from high school, I attended the University of Utah. I, I, um, I got accepted there. And, um, and my, my major was going to be uh, political science. It is uh, political science. And uh, what ended up happening is I did an internship. And as a result of doing that internship with the state legislature, um, one of the state senators that I was doing the internship for asked me whether or not I wanted to um, work for a, um, the county clerk's office. And I said, sure, I'm going to college still. I would more, be more than happy to supplement my, my, my income and be able to do other things and, and continue to work as well as, as, as going to school. And so I, I worked in a seasonal capacity. Um, so I, you know, entered registration forms for the county clerk's office uh, under uh, the uh, elected official there, who, whose name is Sherry Swenson. And I did a variety of things. I worked in the, the warehouse and um, as I was going to the school. And we, at the time, had the punch card system, uh, the, the notorious and infamous uh, punch card system, the hanging chad. Uh, that was used in many uh, elections jurisdictions across the country. And um, at the time, and I remember just putting uh, pages together inside what is known as called the votomatics. And it's, you had to flip in that you had an arrow and it pointed to a punch position on the, on the, uh, on the punch card. And you had a uh, person to vote. They had a, they had a punch, you know, their selection and, and that selection was a, it was a number associated with it. So uh, if, if uh, you ever ran for office, you were really, uh, because of mail balloting or absentee voting, uh, that's what it was called back then. Um, people would campaign on a number, not on a name, uh, because there's always a punch position number that you were assigned to. Uh, so, um, I feel like we could have a really interesting episode of this on how elections have changed since you've been involved <laughs> for so long. There's probably yeah. so many different little technologies. Yeah, just the tech alone. Like Are we ever going to be able to so, vote from our phones? I don't see that happening anytime too soon, at least maybe not in my career or my lifetime. It could come. It could come. I just, it, 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 there's a whole storyline for, for me to get to any level of electronic voting um, online or over the phone. Two things would have to be overcome. There has to be uh, a foolproof way of, of, of security technology to provide that foolproof effort. And then I think maybe even harder than that, even if you did build a system like that, I think that really the, the biggest hurdle is, is going to be uh, overcoming will, a person's will. Because again, as much as there is technologists that are creating the technology, um, there has to be trust. And you have to have the public will. And if they don't have the public will and the trust because they don't, don't understand that technology, there's always going to be the a various level of skepticism about the ability for someone to, to hack into to the system. Um, so, yeah, uh, so I've been in, uh, been in this for uh, 24 years now. So I started at uh, 19 because of that internship in the, in, in the county clerk's office. And, and then what they saw uh, at the time was kind of the same thing as what we see here when we work with really great seasonal staff members is uh, they saw uh, my capabilities, I guess. I, mean, I think part of that was is not so much as my capabilities as 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 what I said before is is just the the work ethic um, that was just there to to get the job and do it right, 
And um, so they offered me what is known as a three-quarter time job. And uh, you would think, what is a three-quarter time job position? And uh, ultimately, what it was described to me at the time was, is you work 30 hours per week. It's a part-time job, 30 hours per week, and, but you get the full benefits. Um, and for me, at the age of 19, and I was under my parents' benefits, I really didn't care too much about that. I was just saying, okay, 30 hours per week. Uh, that's, that's great. Be more than happy to. I'm still going to school. I'm still going through uh, getting my, my degree. Um, and then a couple of years later, after approximately two years after that, oh, the job was uh, geographic information systems. And I didn't know anything about geographic information systems. And they said, well, we want to introduce it to the office. And so um, uh, we'll get someone to uh, train you on, on it. And so uh, I picked up on it pretty quickly. I thought it was fascinating. I still think GIS is such a, a powerful tool on so many different fronts. And at that point in time, it was really in its infancy at the office there, but it's something that was growing um, and, and expanding um, uh, across the entire country and, and continues to expand. Um, and after I did that for a couple of years, the manager of the uh, department uh, was uh, planning on leaving. And, and so they asked me to uh, become the elections manager for the, for the county. And so I did that for a total of, I think I was at the county, uh, Salt Lake County for a total of seven years. So I did that for approximately five years. And during that time frame, I finished up my degree. I was planning on going, going on to law school. I think I mentioned that already. I was planning on going to law school. But uh, at that point, a couple of events happened, um, which uh, kind of not so much just held me back. I wouldn't say it was holding me back. But one of the significant things is one of my siblings, uh, my little, the littlest of the group had, um, uh, she had uh, a leukemia. Um, and what ended up happening for her is that she relapsed approximately five to six years later. And it was exactly that same time frame where I had finished up school and um, I had to be home uh, because my, my parents are uh, limited English proficient uh, uh, citizens. And so for me it was uh, I needed to stay home and, and ensure that the conversations between the doctor and um, my parents was, um, I could translate as best I could. Uh, trust me, I'm not in any way fluent in, in Vietnamese um, by any means, but uh, to the degree I, I could converse and convey uh, what needed to be conveyed um, to my parents uh, from the doctors uh, was I, I, I was there. Certainly my sister was there too, but any thinking about going to law school at, at that point in time was had to be on hold. Um, and Canada came at almost somewhat perfect timing for me of getting offered this uh, position as, as well, uh, which I took because it allowed me to continue uh, uh, something that now I got the bug, uh, the bug bit in 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 terms of uh, the field of elections, uh, and and then also work through uh, this family issue that uh, and deal with my uh, the the uh, sickness that my sister had. Unfortunately, she passed away. And, um, but that allowed, as, as I mentioned again, that allowed some sense of, of, of um, certainty for me as well as my, my family and had to see that portion of it through. Um, and so after that, uh, what happened was 2000's presidential election hit. And, and it came and went. And at that point in time, I had graduated from the University of Utah. Um, 
And at, at that point in, in time, shortly after that, uh, after the 2000 presidential election, so 2001 timeframe, um, I, I continued to work and then said, look, I'm single. Uh, I've graduated. I really haven't had a real interview out there. Uh, time to put a resume together uh, and see if I'm marketable. <laughs> see what's so, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I, never did I know that I was going to land in in um, Cleveland in, in Cuyahoga County. And I was there for about three and a half uh, years, almost four years before being offered a, a position here in, in uh, San Diego County. And I've been here for nearly 14 years. So uh, most of my elections administration career now has been in San Diego County. And um, I've learned a lot. Um, you know, I feel, always say that I uh, learned the fundamentals of elections administration in Salt Lake County. I cut my teeth definitely in Ohio. And, and then this has kind of been the sweet spot of all things, um, when it comes down to uh, the elections administration field, I, you know, the, you've got a board of supervisors as well as a CAO that's so supportive of making sure that our office is able to conduct well-run elections, um, and then the staff uh, and the team here is just amazing, and uh, you know, it was it was it, it's been great. We had a transition of staffing because certainly at some points people start aging out and retiring. And we've really brought on some really amazing people here as well. So uh, I, I feel, frankly, very fortunate to to have inherited a, a great office, and then also to the degree of elevating it uh, with the uh, the new staff as well as uh, working with the existing staff that has been here. It's been somewhat of kind of a uh, a, a very great uh, match in terms of getting all the ingredients um, for the office. And I, I really do believe that between the new folks and there's always a kind of a, 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 a story whenever we bring in someone from uh, the outside that doesn't really have elections, uh, elections experience, um, we always say, you know, uh, are you above sweeping the floors? Because in this field, you have to do anything and everything depending on what's, what, what it takes to conduct an election. And um, the other side to this also is we always say that it takes, you know, four to eight years to learn the election process <laughs> as well. When you talk every two years. Go ahead, when you sorry. talk about you said you caught the bug. When you talk about catching the bug for elections, what is it that you love about sort of administering like elections? Well, it, it definitely elections are not monotonous. There's no two elections I've ever conducted in that 24 years that has been uh, the same. Uh, there's always some some problem that occurs. I always say that um, Murphy's law uh, came as a result of elections <laughs> because something's bound to happen. There's just so many different moving parts. Uh, it, it, there's some challenge associated with it. And certainly this upcoming election is really challenging for us. And something that, uh, you know, I've been really reflecting on is this kind of like one of those, how, how can you top uh, this type of election that we're going into? Not just because of all the national discussions out there, but frankly, all the internal changes that are needing to be made uh, to facilitate the election at the end of the day. Um, so for, for, for me is, uh, it's just the great people and uh, you're always on your toes and you do not know at what point in time this thing could change. You think everything is going right and then in the split moment, um, you can give you the call and just say, you know, there's something wrong with the sample ballot pamphlet or the official ballot or someone's calling and, 
and uh, some emergencies needs to be addressed. So, um, and and certainly that's not just on election day, this is just through the life of, of that election. And I always say that every election has its own life and it has its own characteristics. And and part of the part of the, all of this equation is voters themselves. And and you'd be surprised if you saw some of the mail ballots that come in back to our office. You would think that if we're sending out, you know, 2020, November 2020 presidential uh, election ballots that uh, in every single registered voter in this upcoming election is going to get one of these, these uh, mail ballots, that you would think that voters would return that, uh, vote that mail ballot and return it back to our office. And that's what you're going to find in the envelope when it comes back to us. Every election I think uh, I, we've, uh, I've, I've had here is you would see uh, a situation where there's a ballot from like 2018 or 2016 as opposed to the 2020 ballot. Wow. Do you ever get things that aren't ballots at all? Like, hey, do I'm you ever sorry? get things in the envelopes that aren't ballots at all? Like, I don't know, maybe a letter, maybe some other item. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you, you, uh, you know, we, and I think it was, the, I think it was the last, well, it may have been the uh, November 2018 election. Someone left their pen in it and it jammed our uh, mail ballot sorting equipment. <laughs> We've seen driver's license in there. We've seen people's uh, uh, lease or mortgage payments in, in some of these. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, and you you see a person's point of view when they write all around the edges of the ballot about where they are on a, any mm -hmm. given measure or any given candidate that's out there. Um, so you see it all. And and so that's what it makes it uh, particularly exciting. I think the other side to this also, it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a crisis, but, you know, there are expectations, too, uh, that's out there. And um uh, and so trying to meet those expectations and, and certainly there's the expectations of the office and the performance of the office, but then there's the expectations of the public and campaigns and the media. And, and, and so that all of those in, uh, become part of the equation of, of, of why I, I think I uh, have stayed in it for so long, uh, but also have caught the bug uh, in, in terms of it as well. And it does take a, you know, a different type of person to be able to be in this field because it is long hours. I mean, certainly, particularly this year, um, I, I feel like we've, I've always said that running elections is like um, preparing for a marathon. You know, you just got to condition yourself day by day and um, increase your, uh, your, your endurance until you hit election day. And then on election day, you could be putting in a 20, 30 hour day or plus, uh, depending on how the election goes. This year, we're running like an ultra marathon right now because we really haven't caught a break from preparing for the March election, conducting the March election, and then went straight into preparing and planning out this election because of the pandemic. Yeah, that's actually one of the last things I remember from work before leaving our office is we had our election night and then, you know, shortly after. But one of the things I really want to ask you specifically is like, there is a lot of pressure on you. Like, you are the person whose title goes with so many things. I mean, as you said, there's 10, there's thousands of you guys working together, but there's a lot of pressure on you. Do you get nervous or do you feel that pressure or how do you handle that as the person who's like in charge of everyone else? Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, there are certain times where it gets very intense um, in terms of are we meeting our timelines because uh, we have, we march by E dates. So today is E minus 39. And so we need to make sure that all the thousands, of, if not tens of thousands of pieces of activities and details that needs to be put together is happening 
and that cadence is done properly. This election um, has been really difficult because we're, for the most part, something that we've matured in as an organization, have worked together for multiple years um, through and can probably finish uh, each other's sentences, has kind of somewhat been disrupted because of the pandemic. And now because of these major changes where every single registered voter is going to receive a mail ballot, the fact that we're consolidating the polling locations more heavily and going from what we were anticipating 1,600 polling locations and where we thought we were going to need 9,000 poll workers are now having fewer of those um, uh, throughout the county, but changing that whole model on a dime, you just don't do, uh, particularly in a presidential election. And you map that out, you know, four to six years in advance. And we're really, we're doing this in four to six months. Uh, I would say uh, generally, I, I think if you mentally prepare that, you just know that there, you've got to prepare that a shoe may drop or a number of shoes may drop uh, during the life of the election. And the question is, is the severity of it and, and making sure that you know which areas are going to be the ones that are the that requires the most uh, uh, level of assurance and robustness and support to ensure that that shoot does not drop. Um, and then everything else becomes put into context. I think I've run into um, in my career a number of situations where things didn't go wrong. And I think that's where you know, those experiences has, has gotten me to be able to kind of manage the what, what is uh, earth shattering versus something that is, okay, we can live through this. Uh, this may maybe be a 24 hour problem or is it going to be extended beyond a 24 hour problem? Um, so um, I, I think that's por a portion of it. And then the other side to this is, I think part of the benefits of, uh, of an elections office is, is that you're required to be transparent. Um, uh, there's nothing that we can hide. Uh, the fact is observers have the ability, to, uh, the public has the ability to come in and observe their ballots being processed. The fact that uh, we know that the public has the ability or campaigns has the ability to look over our shoulders as we're verifying signatures on, on ballots. Um, the fact that um, it, it's situations like this where it's all important for us to convey what's important to voters in this upcoming election. and and have them understand and become aware and educated about what is different about this election that they need to be in, informed on. So I think uh, it, it, having that um, as a, a requirement of, of, of the office makes things frankly a little bit easier. And, and for me is and certainly with talking with the team is in any business uh, uh, discipline is, you know, when does some, something does go wrong is, can you really convey it uh, to trusted people, uh, knowing that they will do everything in their power to correct that chip uh, if it needs to be corrected and, and then also talk it through. So I, I hope um, that, I, I think that would, Christy, I think that would probably go to the other aspects of catching the bug as well as, is that not only is no two election the same and it's not monotonous, but the fact is, is, is you've got thousands of people operating together in unison to get their portion of it done uh, and the other set of people uh, getting their portion of it done and it's all interconnected and it all has to come together at the right moment. Um, so that I think is, is um, uh, fascinating for me is, and it still does 24 years later, is how does this all get to come together, right? Everyone has to play their part and it's a piece to the giant puzzle. And if that puzzle is not there, it doesn't go. Mm -hmm. um, I and, and everyone in the office uh, becomes to know that if they're new to the field of elections. If you've been in into it, um, 
then you kind of know that I'm just one piece of an inter, you know this network of other things that has to really come together to to make elections work. Yeah, it seems like almost an impossible machine to run, but obviously it is possible because you do it and seem to do it well. Um, but, you know, this year obviously is a little different than past elections, uh, especially with all the mail-in ballots, right, that uh, we're expecting. Are you prepared for that or, or you know, what should we expect? Well, I, as I mentioned before, uh, voters have, we, for the most part, have really aligned ourselves to voter preferences. And voters' preferences for years now, the, the number of people voting by mail has only increased from 2004 to now over 600% increase of people signing up to be a permanent mail ballot voter. And for us to be able to, to manage to that preference, we've had to create this infrastructure. All of the, the, the processes and procedures and the chain of custody of uh, and the security of all these mail ballots has had to be there whether it's purchasing of equipment or uh, going through business process re-engineering efforts about the capacity to ensure that we're efficient but also accurate in in terms of managing to the capacity needs to to make sure everything is, is operating as efficiently as possible so for us it's been a maturity over a decade of time if not more actually more than a decade of time uh, to get to the point that we are. So when we talk about issuing everyone a mail ballot in this upcoming election, 78% of the, our electorate are already a permanent mail ballot voter. So we're really talking about the 22% that aren't. And in that regard, we've really have made all the respective purchases, have all the really uh, the uh, processes and procedures in place to really facilitate this. In fact, we at some point knew that we were gonna get to this point. And the good thing is we had all those pieces already together. Now, having said that, we have purchased some more equipment, uh, but minor in comparison to the overall infrastructure that is out there. Um, so I feel, frankly, this is an area where we are strong in, we're uh, well-suited in, in handling uh, an election where every single registered voter will receive a mail ballot and, and having those mail ballots comes back to us. And we know that there's gonna be a lot of them. It, this is a presidential election year, and we're expecting over you know, 1.2, 1.3 million of the overall ballots that are cast are going to be mail ballots. And so we are looking at that as how do we overcome that and how much time do we have to be able to do that? And then ultimately, how do we ensure that everything is accurate and there is the utmost of integrity throughout the entire system? I just wanted to ask, this is a question you've probably been getting, but there is a lot of talk about, you know, the safety and security of elections and, I think what a lot of people want to hear from the registrar voters this year is how do you keep an election safe and secure and and how specifically in 2020 what is the uh, emphasis uh, this year well uh, certainly the emphasis uh, for this year is it really relates to and it's encapsulated in 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 the logo that we created as a result of the pandemic and that's vote safer san diego and um, we have a logo that's essentially the flag and and of course, where the star, uh, stars and stripes, uh, the, uh, the stars are, is where we have a mail ballot envelope in, in white. And I can send that, certainly send that to you. But it encapsulate the fact that to vote safe for San Diego, part of that is to vote that mail ballot. Um, and I think the other part of the vote safer campaign as well is to uh, do certain things, uh, good practices associated with that, that mail ballot. That is to clearly mark it, to sign the back of the envelope to seal the ballot inside the envelope and then to return it to the trustees department so they know that there's a conversation around this notion of ballot harvesting and 
And so we wanted to address the matter ourselves in our own way. And for us, uh, returning it to a trusted source includes the U.S. Postal Service and the thousands of collection boxes that they, they pick up mail from. And particularly when uh, all of these return envelopes are postage paid um, for voters as well. So a person does not need to place a stamp on the return envelope uh, for them to return their ballot back to our office um, or to any of our mail ballot drop-off locations, which they 125 of the 126 of them that we will have starting on October 6th, because we will uh, mailing on October 5th, the, the mail ballots. October 6th, we'll have 125 of the 126 that are staffed with people that will be open to receive voted ballots back from voters. If they don't want to uh, put it through the U.S. Postal Service, but that's our first recommendation is to do that before doing a drop-in uh, at a mail ballot drop-off location. Or uh, separate from all of those locations is the 235 super polls locations that we will have uh, starting on October 31st. And of course, they will be open through uh, November 3rd at 8 p.m. when the polls close. But how do we how do we uh, ensure the, the security of not just this election? I don't think this this election is any different than uh, uh, than any other prior elections in terms of the level of security. Uh, certainly, I think there's a level of uh, heightened awareness around it because of the national discussion uh, out there. But uh, really, for us, is those systems have. All, all, always have been in place. I think there's a couple of new elements that uh, that voters can can ensure that uh, they're tracking uh, their respective ballots and taking ownership of the, the the security of their ballots as well, and get some level of transparency uh, of knowing where their ballot is in the cycle of getting it uh, their voted ballot back to our office or getting from the U.S. Postal Service to them. Uh, so how do we do that? I, I think for us, what are the fundamentals of, of the Elections Administration and, and security of of any elections. Uh, first of all, it starts with the voter registration list to begin with and making sure you know who are the eligible registered voters that can participate in the election. Uh, there's a certain amount of ownership that voters have to take to or individuals that are registering to vote, that they are testing, that they are a US citizen, that they are qualified in all sense under state law, that they are able to be a registered voter here in the state of California when they sign off on that registration form and then send it to our office. Uh, there is some degree of validation on that with a person putting their last digits of their social security number on on that uh, registration form or their driver's license number. Now, federal law doesn't require you to place those uh, two things uh, on there, but if you don't, then you may be asked to, uh, to show that identification. That's by federal law. That's the only, really the only uh, requirement uh, that we have where identification may be necessary when you're a first-time by-mail registered voter. Um, so. Uh, it's the maintenance uh, maintenance of that voter registration rolls. And so for us, uh, we are, are highly regulated both on the federal as well as state level to maintain the file in a specific way. Uh, it's not like we can take arbitrary, make arbitrary decisions on our side um, to you know start canceling voters off the voter registration rolls or keep voter uh, voters on their registration rolls. It's pretty pretty systematic in terms of when we can and when we cannot uh, uh, do that. Um, so part of that is. How do you know when someone has passed away? Well, uh, because we get a list from the Bureau of Vital Records or we get a, a, a list from our Health and Human Services Agency that's uh, received from them through our, our county uh, clerk assessor recorder office. Um, and we also uh, get information from voters or their family members. If a person is, uh, particularly a family member, if a person uh, has passed away, uh, then we uh, have on our uh, on our website a cancellation form. They notify us. We ask them to fill it out because we just cannot 
take a third party uh, person telling us that someone has passed away. We really do have to get some either first person interaction or at least a family member to, to tell us of, of the person's death to protect an error on the side of the burner um, as well. Um, if a person moves, how are we maintaining the file uh, when a person moves? Well, uh, we do that through mailings. When a person, when we send out the sample ballot and voter information pamphlet, when we send out a direct mail uh, to the voter and it comes back as undeliverable, that allows us to then inactivate that voter potentially and then send them a direct mail that's forwardable to their new address, if it's out, particularly if it's out of state, to confirm, hey, is your intent to still live here in San Diego or is it that now that you, uh, it looks like you've moved to Colorado? And if that's the case, then let's cancel you off the rolls here. We also get information from other elections offices throughout the entire country saying this person has registered votes. We can move them off the voter registration rolls. We receive information from the courts, federal and as well as the state courts, saying the person is an incarcerated felon. So therefore, you need to remove them off the rolls if you have them on the rolls. Again, it's kind of a not always the case where you get this lesson. They are a registered voter as well. So you have to kind of look through it and, and find all the variations. Uh, like, for example, you might have um, a person named Mike Vu versus Mike Lou, and you got to determine whether it's one of the same person. Um, so it's kind of interesting because, you know, registering to vote is pretty um, available conveniently out there for anyone. You can go simply online and, and register to vote. Well, I go online and register as Mike Vu one day and then turn around and have the same information under Michael Vu. And for us, it's our office's responsibility because it's not a perfect science to look at all the variations of how a person is one and the same individual. So we are having to do all these different types of queries to say, okay, first three letters of last name and three letters of first name, same birth date, and maybe uh, the last word is your social security number. If it's all exact match, it's a high confidence match and let's just purchase the record. If it's not, then we're happy to manually look to see because if we fail on that and we merge two records together, we could be potentially disenfranchising a voter too. So we've got to be very careful about how the maintenance of the voter registration rolls occurs. So after that, then we can start issuing things like the mail ballots. And in, in that regard, uh, know that we are tracking every one of the mail ballots. Uh, we know what mail ballots we issue because on the outside and uh, of the envelope is a person's uh, is a barcode that identifies that person to uh, the voter. And so when you vote and you sign that envelope, there's a barcode on it and that represents you. And when it comes back to our office, we're able to scan in that barcode and that signature. And when we bring that into the voter registration system, we're able to bring in the signature on file, your record, the signature that we have on file against the signature that we just imaged and then do the comparison. So, and if we see something that is off, like the signature doesn't compare, then we flag it. And we do multiple iterations of elevations here at the office to determine, is this the same person or is it not? And then if we determine that it's not the same person, then we actually have to notify the voter and let them know that they could cure their signature uh, before we can count the ballot. Um, so there's also chain of custody uh, as well throughout the entire system when it comes down to the mail ballots. At every point when that mail ballot comes to our office, it's being logged. Uh, when it's going through our sorters, it goes into a tray of 200. And uh, after we signature verify, it goes back through the source. So it's it, it, it's going through the source to, to say which ones are flagged and which ones are, are verified. 
and it's expecting 200 envelopes in the same order in which uh, it, it landed the first go around. And if it, if it isn't, um, that means uh, the system will say, hold on a second here, you're missing an envelope here. Uh, you've got an orphan ballot. So that allows us to do some research uh, because everything, frankly, is now done on screen and we don't, really don't have to touch those envelopes ex except for at specific points of time. Um, so there's a whole chain of custody flow at every given handoff of these ballots uh, throughout the entire system and it's being logged um, as well. So, the, and then as I mentioned, voters have the ability to have their own level of security and peace of mind as well. Uh, we're offering where's my ballot on our website at sdvote.com through the Secretary of State's office that's providing service and uh, all counties are participating in it. And a voter can put, give us their cell phone number or their email address and they will get push notifications about when their ballot ballot is gonna be delivered to them through the US Postal Service or delivered back to our office after they have voted it and dropped a, it off to, uh, through the mail. And they'll get push notifications by email or text or voicemail as to what stage of the uh, process of this ballot is getting back to our office. So um, that's some of the uh, various uh, levels of security out there. I think the other part of that, that is, is voters themselves. Certainly, if there's going to be something that goes wrong at any given point, you're going to hear about it. We're going to hear about it. We're going to get the phone calls and something's going to raise as a red flag and we have to go in and research it, either validate it and if it raises, rises to the level of like, potential voter fraud, certainly we have the law enforcement bodies uh, that are out there, the district attorney's office, the FBI and the Secretary of State Fraud Investigation Unit that we would turn to to uh, further investigate the matter and determine um, the, if, if there is a case of any issues that are out there. I've said this time and time again, during my career, uh, I have not ever seen any level of systemic voter fraud that's out there, um, in any, in not just in mail ballots, but even in the polling place uh, side of things as well. But I, it starts with the voter registration file and um, you know this all this conversation about the U.S. Postal Service's viability. I think one of the things uh, that gets lost uh, about the 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 uh, importance of the U.S. Postal Service. Not, it's not just only about the mail ballots and the, their ability to uh, meet the capacity of the outbound as well as the inbound capacity, uh, but it's also that it's fundamental, their, their services is fundamental to keeping voter registration lists clean and maintained appropriately. Because as I mentioned, anyone that files a national change of address that they've moved, we're receiving that information and interacting with that in information to get to that voter and update their, their their record on file with our office. Because um, this is called Name Drop San Diego, our final question to our guests is always <laughs> to name drop somebody in this community who has inspired you, influenced you, has just been a, a great person in your life for whatever reason. So who would that be for you here in San Diego? I, 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 I have to name drop a couple of people then because I always say that mm. if there was going to... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You can have more than one. You can have more than one. <laughs> well, let me just put it this way. I always say that if I'm going to be down a dark alley, the only people that I want to be down a dark alley with are, are effectively women. So two people that I would say is um, Helen Robbins-Meyer, um, who is our CAO. Uh, I just adore her in so many different ways. How she leads this county and the county operations has just been amazing and, uh, on that front. And I think uh, the other person I would say is my predecessor. Uh, so that would be Deborah Seiler, 
who's now retired. Um, both of those two uh, ladies have uh, certainly influenced me in, uh, on the one hand, um, on elections, um, and 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 um, I feel is is both in ways as a mentor for me to, and we're really good friends, uh, myself and, and Deborah. Uh, and even though she is now living up in in, in Sacramento, is where she's originally from. Uh, before she came down here to work but I, I really do appreciate you know uh, her uh, and even though I came back uh, came here with uh, much experience in in the ways of elections administration certainly California has a different way of conducting elections and certainly uh, her breadth of experience and, and knowledge has always been um, someone that I, I always highly respected in, in what she's always said and then Helen has just always been supportive of of this operations, but of, of myself too. And, and uh, particularly when you're talking about elections and you're talking about political parties and campaigns that are out there, and it's kind of the, you're the center of everything that's coming in and out of, of uh, how uh, local or state or county government is going to operate. You know, there's a level of pressure there that is, is that you need to push back that you, this is a nonpartisan operations. And, and Helen has absolutely recognized that uh, in a variety of different ways um, of that need to preserve uh, this office's uh, stance in terms of how it needs to be able to get the support that it needs, but also um, buffer it from, from anything that is out there. And I do believe um, the Board of Supervisors, um, uh, as well as uh, Helen, has been, uh, understands that and respects this, this institution um, for us to be able to, to really uh, operate the way that we do. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Name Drop San Diego. And if you're interested in our election coverage, make sure to check out SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. Yeah, our newsroom is all over it. Reporters will be live blogging throughout the rest of the election season, and our opinion team has interviews with many of the candidates online now. Please share this episode with your friends and family while you're at it and remind them to register to vote. Clock is ticking. Thanks, everybody. Go vote. Bye.